I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From Backpage, I'm Martin Gregg and this is Between the Lines, a podcast telling the stories behind great sports writing. Michael Calvin's new book is called State of Play Under the Skin of the Modern Game and in it he shines a light on the human stories of football. We hear from chairmen, journeymen, female coaches, performance coaches, rights campaigners and those who fight for the soul of the national game in the light of its rampant commercialisation. As always, you'll get a strong sense of the themes of the book, but we also talk at length about the nature of sports writing and how the eloquent prose of Arthur Hopcraft inspired the format of the book. Talk a bit about the influence of Hopcraft, how this was the, the entry point for a state of play, if you like. Yeah, I suppose I suppose state of play, to a degree, is a homage to two people. My dad, my late dad, and uh, Arthur Hopcraft. They are connected. My dad was... Um, worked on the local electricity board and came home one evening with two uh, books that he'd scavenged from an empty house. The first was a glossary of the 1945 UK Parliament, which basically informed my political beliefs in terms of campaigning Parliament, birth of the NHS, etc., etc. But the other was The Football Man. And I was 13 at the time and had been through the cycle of wanting to be an astronaut and I was going to be some sort of working-class warrior in Parliament... And I read the, the final two lines of, of his introduction. Uh, I, am a, I am a reporter trying to get to the heart of uh, what football is. Yeah. And that just entranced me. Yeah. And when I read the book as a kid, it's, and actually it was, there's, a, there's still a pang of guilt in it because the last time this book was taken out of the Watford Public Library was February the 3rd, 1971. So the fine's going to be horrendous when I eventually <laughs> take it back. It was just the clarity of the writing, the, the lucidity of it, the images that he created of ordinary people. Of, you know, there's one image of, a, of a, fan, a fan approaching George Best. And uh, there, was, there were these wonderful descriptions of people that it was just one moment in time and he captured them in that moment in time. But also he captured the sport in, in that one moment in time and it was the perfect snapshot of, it, of football in 68 where you had, you know, there are only two female passages in the book, small ones, George Best landlady, uh, Bobby Charlton's mother, yeah. Yeah. You know, in an age where football, women's football was still banned. So that gives you an idea of how much the, you know, the, the, the landscape has changed mm. both you know, socially, culturally, politically, economically, Sporting in sporting sense, and I, so that's why in this state of play, I made a, a special point of saying that football, modern football, needs a woman's touch. Yes, you know, female female love, and it needs people like Emma Hayes, who I, I talk yeah. talk to in, in the book, very 
emotionally intelligent, empathetic, modern leader. And the fact that she's a woman working in women's football actually is, is a, it's a limitation that we could do without because, frankly, she could work in men's game without, without a problem. So, look, going back to Hopcraft, there was someone who I think he was probably still subjected to the intellectual snobbery that, that, that football writers are uh, assailed by now and again. You know, he's known and lauded more for the, the screenwriting, the adaptations of Dickens and Le Carre, rather than the work that he did for the Sunday Times, where there were really keenly observed interviews and, and written in a wonderful prose style, which you know, people tell me, oh, that's gone out of fashion with the, you know, the test card and TV, but actually, you, you read that, it is as vibrant and as convincing and evocative as it was the day it was published. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because it is interesting when you go back and read some old match reports, for example, and the language is quite archaic, and mm. I quite enjoyed reading it, by the way. I'm not dismissing it, right? But, but reading Hopcraft, I mean, you used, I wrote down two words you used there, clarity, lucidity. I got that. It felt, there was a modern feel to it. It felt fresh and vital. This doesn't feel like something that's been, you know, consigned to, to the past, this style of writing. There's, there's something really enduring about it because it's so sharp. So sharp and so emotionally incisive. Gets to the heart of who that person is. And he, he has a, you know, obviously you know, a flair for the, the really apposite phrase. What struck me as a kid, he, he talked about Sir, uh, Sir Alf Ramsey and um, his uh, World Cup winning team in 1966. Uh, you know, he characterised them as, as Spitfire pilots going out to battle the Hun. And, and, and you know, as a kid at that stage, I was just entranced by that image. And I think a, a, a modern... A modern football fan will almost see his or her birthright in the pages of Hopcraft because that was a time where the emotional link between a fan and a club and a community was strong and they weren't items of you know, statistics from you know, social media penetration or whatever. They were real people and so were the protagonists. So you know, the book State of Play made a point of starting State of Play one with a very powerful story because it's, you know, I think books are very much now, the 15 second intro into a song is pretty much dead. You bang, you go straight into it, which is what I wanted, I wanted to do with all my books. So uh, Dawn Astle describing the last 30 seconds in the life of her father, Jeff Astle, had that instant impact emotionally, you know, it grabs people emotionally, but also there was a link between 1968 and 2018 because Jeff Astle scored the winning goal in the FA Cup final in 68. And he, he is a product of Hopcraft's age, the sort of quintessential local hero, lived in a club semi-detached, held up his washing line in the, in, in the back garden with a, an old goal post. He was a familiar figure yeah. to the fans who called him the king. And when he died... And, and to fill in, you know, the, your listeners who you know, are not au okay with the, the precise details of the case, died at 59, choked to death on his own vomit in his front garden at a family occasion. A scene described you know, in harrowing detail by Dawn in the book. And 
the coroner said that he, uh, he was a victim of uh, an industrial injury, i.e. heading a football, and there were elements of Hillsborough in the durability of Dawn's campaign against you know, official prevarication and uh, you know, the usual mixture of ignorance and arrogance that applies in that matter. And when uh, well, the cortege went through the streets and we had people on the walls of the church into which Jeff Astle's coffin was being born, and people were reaching out to touch that coffin. It's almost like a last gesture of solidarity or respect, whatever you want to call it. So there was a, there was a time when these footballers were almost men of the people, and what I found impossibly poignant during that interview, or that day I spent with Dawn. And it's one of those ones, as a writer, I get emotionally engaged with the people that, that I interview because I don't actually interview them. I try and just have conversations mm-hmm. with them and allow them to speak for themselves. And then, good or bad, I then allow the readers to make his or her mind up. But there, is an, a, there was a degree of... A, a really, it was a really emotional day, and you know, she was crying, and then I started crying. And it was just... It was one of these... It sort of transcended... You know the purpose of our meeting in many ways. It was quite a, quite a strange thing to go through. Yeah. But the, the most poignant thing was that she came up with this like school exercise book, and um, you know it was quite a typical one. One of these ones where it was like a, a, pl- a transparent plastic cover to protect it. Four hundred names in there, and they were of footballers that either died from dementia or in the terminal stages of it. Of, mm-hmm. of it. And she'd annotated underneath each of the names, you know, a thumbnail sketch of who they were or what, what had happened in this sort of very sort of spidery, um, almost like school mistressy handwriting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, the great tragedy of these 400 names, one is that, wow, this is, you know, that's a generation there. Most of those guys, in fact, almost all of those guys died without knowing they were footballers mm-hmm. and that they meant something to their community and they meant yeah. something to the people around them. And I found that very, very, um, very emotive. You know, I know. Suppose you know, I'm suppo- you know, I know writers are meant to sort of keep some sort of like professional distance between them and their subjects, but I sometimes can't. And in that one, I, the last thing I said to Dawn as I left her that day is, "I promise you, I'll do your dad justice." And I hope, I hope I've done so. You know, I'll leave it up to people to decide that. But and I think, I suppose, in a general sense, when I've written in the past, I've always tried to. I've never been afraid to engage emotionally because I think if I'm emotionally engaged, I know my way around the alphabet fairly well, so I think I can get the reader interested and engaged as well. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, bottom line is we're all flesh and blood, and I think people identify with... You don't have to have a name. It's it's, it's about the hidden power of your own story. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I suppose if you look at the books I've done in the past, I've done a couple of co-writes, and, and the first one was with um, Gareth Thomas, the mm-hmm. British Lions captain. And that was hugely em- uh, emotional because, you know, we were addressing um, suicidal issues and, and, and episodes. And I suppose I, I sort of very loosely called it more like method writing. Mm-hmm. So, that, yeah. so when we were with Gareth, we went back to his mum and dad's house I actually made a point of sleeping in the bed that he slept in as a kid, so I could see the there was a it was a council house and it was on a corner and there was a a, a lamp outside, so I could see the the shadows which were cast by the lamp and yeah. get a feel for the guy who basically cried himself to sleep because he was 
he, he was afraid of his own sexuality. <laughs> and in that case, you know, we ended up on a um, cliff top overlooking the um, uh, Bristol Channel, <laughs> and we actually stood on the rock that he was going to jump from. <laughs> we had a 250-foot drop, and we talked. And it was, it was bizarre because it was an on, onshore breeze, and listening to the tape on the, on the way back, it was very difficult to actually decipher a lot of what we said. But right. Each of us had an absolutely clear view of everything that we said. Yeah. And so, yeah, so, you know, I know I've digressed there a bit, but I, I just think as a writer, what I try to do is, is offer something of someone's soul to the reader. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and hopefully you know, people seem to you know, respond to that that type of sort of almost the challenge to the reader to to get get as deep into it as I do as the writer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, great sports writing does exist in these moments and cap observing and capturing and bottling these kind of moments. And uh, when I was reading um, Hopcraft, there was, there was a great um, passage about. George Best and I've written it down here he says seeing him pressing bottles of wine into people's hands at an impromptu party after a match then stepping jauntily out with a delicious girl in fluffy furs I was struck by his um, bravura and enjoyment of the spotlight he was not hogging it but acknowledging its presence while it burned for him he plays the kind of football he plays because of the kind of person he is which I just thought was beautiful and I think that, that final line he plays the kind of football he plays because of the kind of person he is and you, you know that takes a lot to get to, to, to that level of insight which mm. I think is kind of what you're talking about there mm. and it was interesting you talk about the touching of the coffin because that was something that really struck me almost like it would be the first thing that I would think of when I think of this book um, those supporters who stood in graveyard walls to touch his coffin as it was born into a church funeral prior to cremation related to his natural humility these moments are so important that yeah. they're captured, aren't they? Because they're the gateway to telling someone's story. But they are, and it's more and more difficult to capture them because of the monetization and commercialization of sporting prominence, if you like. And, and that's why, you know, there's a chapter in the book where I've looked at, at Deli Alley as a, as a sort of symbol of the modern footballer, where they're in a completely contradictory situation. On the one hand, they're completely overexposed through social media, and you know they're basically at the whim of every anonymous abuser who uses social media just to you know, vent some feelings or you know, examine some character flaws that they might have. So you've got that on one hand. On the other hand, these guys are completely isolated because you know, the modern player. So, for instance, Deli Ali, like Pogba, is promoted by Adidas not as a footballer, but as a, quote, content creator who will have their own media channels eventually. But at the heart of it, there's still a 21-year-old boy who's had a hugely difficult background, brought up by adoptive parents because you know, his mother was an alcoholic, his father turned up for the conception and um, then appeared sporadically. But I knew him as, uh, I knew him as the 16-year-old kid that I first met. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was a coincidence. I, I, was, um, mm-hmm. I think I was researching Living on the Volcano, the manager's book, when I was with Carl Robinson. And, uh, you know, he turned up as a 16-year-old as a scholar, asking Carl, you know, do I, do I go into the, into the bubble with all the rest of the boys and do my coaching badges? And, and Carl said, no, kid, you're here now, this is your job. So it was a moment 
Yes. Coincidentally, I was at the moment where he became the, the boy became the man in a football yeah. sense. And the story I tell in the book is just to try and again to, to illustrate the humanity of, that is so often overlooked. Deli Alley, if you look at Deli Alley, is perceived as a bit of a turbulent character, a bit brittle. He's boob whenever he gets the ball, he's meant to be provocative. The kid I know was on the deathbed of, of a mutual friend of ours. Simon Edwards was a behavioural specialist who worked with Delhi when he was having trouble sleeping. You know, mm-hmm. the, the whole sort of pressure thing was getting to him a bit. And he worked with him when he was an, as a kid at Milton Keynes as well. And Simon helped me a lot when I did No Hunger in Paradise, came around to my house for a day, and essentially, in almost layman's terms, laid out the psyche of the young player so I could understand the sort of people I was going to, was going to write about and the sort of issues that, that confront these kids. Um, great guy. He was diagnosed with, with terminal cancer three and a half years ago. Had a prognosis of that he would survive for a year. It wasn't until January of this year that he called Carl Robinson and said, look, I've probably got about 10 days left. And he asked to see Delhi and another player, Benny Kofobe, for the last time. So the three of them went to the hospice. And so he had Delhi sitting at the end of you know, what was Simon's deathbed, talking about his life and what he'd been through, but also what was to come. You know, will he go to Real Madrid? This whole life that's around him. And they laughed about some of the absurdities of football. And it was after his funeral, he said to me, I saw him at the England camp, and that's no longer camp paranoia. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Gareth Southgate has done a fantastic thing in terms of almost empowering the players to mm. be themselves. Yeah. And you know, again, as I said earlier on about Emma being empathetic and emotionally intelligent, Gareth is that as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he was saying to me then, uh, Daddy was saying to me then, look, playing's the easy bit. Playing football's the easy bit. You know, because when I play for England or I play for Tottenham, playing the World Cup, I'm, I'm playing the game I played as a kid. Yeah. I'm a kid. It's everything else that's around it, which is the difficult part. You know, he talked at length about that, and he said, look, I'm 21. I make stupid mistakes. I'm 21, that's why. Yeah. So hopefully people, with, by reading those sort of passages, begin to get an understanding of, look, okay, the guy might have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. He might have the, the celebrity sheen. But you know, as I said, there's another chapter where I talked to a guy, you know, what, what will be classified as an old pro, really, an old journeyman pro, Drew Broughton. 22 clubs, played for 66 managers. He's, he's working with these young kids, one of, one of whom is an uh, England under-21 international, who, if he's judged superficially, which all these guys are, has the lot. He's got the money, he's got the bling, he's got the social media profile. You know, you go into his Instagram or Twitter, mm. you know, he is, he's hip, he's happening, he's, he's yeah. the boy, he's the man. That kid watches YouTube clips over and over again of Ronaldinho, his hero. Mm-hmm. He cries himself to sleep at night because he's so insecure. Mm-hmm. Because he's in a world where he's, he's a, a you know, leading Premier League club, he's, he's loan fodder at the moment, doesn't know where his life's going, yeah. he's got a father who's overbearing. That's the real world. These are yeah. people, just because they happen to have a special talent, mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're ordinary people in an extraordinary yeah, environment. Yeah, you, you, you're humanising ordinary people in extraordinary situations. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But I think you're talking about the challenge of how to do that and maybe how it, it, it's harder because of the level of access or lack of access yeah. that you're allowed to. And, and that's interesting because how do you break through that? It's interesting you talk about Southgate in the summer and the, the, the different climate, the different spirit around that camp. But the reason that that changed was because that he, Southgate allowed access. The FA finally said, right, we are going to let you look behind the scenes. We are going to let you see the humanity of these guys mm. and inviting empathy. Mm. If you like, you mm. know, but mm. that, that's a cultural change, isn't it? That, that, Absolutely. That yeah. needs to be, it almost needs to be followed through on if, if football, elite football is not going to spontaneously combust, you know? Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've been around the England camps for more years than I care to remember, and it was painful. Mm. You know, it went from amateurish to cynical to, you know, a succession of vastly paid charlatans who were the national manager. Gareth I'd known since he was about 22, 23, um, so a quarter of a century almost. Knew him, he, uh, he came from Watford where I came from. His uncle, funny enough, uh, lived, lived on, the, on the road that my, my mum and dad lived in the council estate there for about 50 odd years. And when he was about 24, 25, he, he wanted to be a sports journalist. And he used to, uh, I was on a telegraph at the time, and he used to you know, read my stuff and say, well, we, why did you write it that way, or you know, what were you seeing? So he was analytical even then, but he, he then, you know, obviously, all the experiences he acquired, you know, he's, he's hard. You have to be hard to do what he's done, yeah. and so, you know, the, the there was a, there was sort of a bit of a, um, sort of old school cynicism when he was appointed, but I got it because when I when I, I I did him at length in No Hunger, and. That was when he was in the transition from being under 21 manager to full manager. And it became clear to me then that maybe more by luck than judgment, the FA got the right guy because he was someone who understood the totality of the system. He wasn't some big ticket, supposedly big name who just gets parachuted in. He was of the system and almost embodied what they were trying to do. He had relationships on that basic human level that we've been speaking with all the young kids from you know the under 17s up to the under 21s, so these are the kids who will who will move in and who actually you know, quite a few are already in that senior squad and some more will come in, you know people like Foden or Sancho and people like that. 
So Gareth understood, because of his development background, that football is not a game of X's and O's. Excellent. It's not a game of win, lose or draw. It's a game of flesh and blood. And I think that is very important because we, you're right, Martin, that we live in an age where you know, football inevitably mirrors society. And you have, there's, there's an increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots. And in that sort of splintering, if you like, the social splintering, lies football's real problem. Yeah. Because... You know, look at the book of the, of the future of the game. It's evolving quickly. You know, I've, I've had conversations this week where I'm now convinced what will happen, uh, or there will be a move that um, a Premier League will still continue. But you see, there's been a there's been a fundamental shift. This 25 billion pound offer that FIFA have got on the table for the Club World Cup and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. That that shifts. FIFA from a supposedly independent arbiter of the game to commercially interested exploiters of the game. So my view is that I think the Premier League will eventually splinter. I think there will be some sort of pan-global mm. competition where you know a club like Manchester United will have 16 games a season and they'll play uh, you know they'll play half of their home games around the world. So that, because what we've already seen in Manchester United is a dilution of the original concept of what Manchester United is as a football club. So you've got the bigger clubs acting out of self-interest. They're now taken over by people like Stan Kroenke, 100% owner of Arsenal. I mean, do what he wants with it. It's his baby. It's his toy. And we, <coughs> excuse me. And we've seen what he's done in, in the NFL to know that he he doesn't care about anything other than the bottom line. So he he, he could move Arsenal to wherever, Antwerp, or wherever he wants to take them. So the game splintering at that top end, I think what will happen, it's always been, it's always been significant to me that the Premier League has always been billed as the, the Premier League rather than the English Premier League. Mm-hmm. So I can see, you know, I'm beginning to pick up whispers that the Celtic Rangers thing could come back. I think they're going to go for PSG to come into the Premier League, mm-hmm. Ajax, maybe some Italian clubs. So I, I, I see, so I'm making all this point because so what's happening is that game is becoming, will become more elitist, more cynical, more hyper-commercial. Yeah. More paranoid in terms of access. Yeah, yeah, because it's just the marketing. You know, mm. Writers get in the way of the marketing plan. Mm. Yeah. But, and you, you, know, you look at what's happening with Manchester City at the moment. There is an, there's, there's, a, there's a book which has to be seen to be believed, I'm told. Um, written by a propagandist from the UAE government purporting to be the great inside view of City in the first mm-hmm. 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the Amazon a documentary series was just pure propaganda. To me, it, was, it wasn't a journalistic exercise. Mm-hmm. It was a marketing exercise to sell shirts in Mumbai or Malaysia or Melbourne. So we are in that age. My, my interest is, you know, we're speaking up here in Scotland, speaking to some guys up here. I think... In Scotland, you don't cherish what you've got, which in, in the large cases, that intensity of relationship between fan and small club. Mm. And I think what might happen is because more and more people are becoming alienated by the move towards this soulless, bloodless, exploitative culture mm-hmm. at the highest level. Yeah. That'll just go its own way. Yeah. And, you know, the guy... We've been on the Stretford end for 50 years. 
will be priced out of existence because, frankly, you know, 50 Japanese with bulging bags from the, from the uh, uh, mega store are more important to the football club. As, yeah. or, or the not the football club, the institution. Mm-hmm. There's a senior figure at United said t- 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 to me about e- about 18 months ago. Look, you, what people don't realise yet, but they will, is that this is just a schizophrenic organisation where there's a football operation. And it's it's Old Trafford, it's Carrington, it's the Cliff, the old training ground. But actually, the power and the influence, and almost like the raison d'être now is represented by the office in Mayfair, mm-hmm. where they're selling everything around the world, you know, they're selling tra- tractors in Omsk and mm-hmm. you know, wine in Spain or whatever. So the game is changing. My hope is that people will gravitate towards you know, what I call flesh and blood football, i.e. You know, the, one of the, I suppose, the, the chaps I had most fun doing in State of Play was um, a chapter called Dreamers, where I looked at three clubs. One was a mate of mine who called me last May and said, um, I think I need my head testing. I've just bought a football club. That's tier six, tier seven in England. And he said, well, I've got no players, got no ground, got no fans, but I've got a manager. And I'm just about to sack the manager. (laughs) And uh, so I went through the season. Now, his first gate was 11, six of whom were referee assessors. but they went through the season, did, did fairly well. I think their final gates were around about 95, 100. And, but he said suddenly, he said, this club means something yeah. to people. You know, it was another club, Dunstable Town, where they literally had no money. The, the, the most recognisable club out of the three was Accrington Stanley, and I think that's where the link is. Really good guy owns it now, a guy called Andy Holt. Didn't want to be a football club owner. He was actually, as a kid, he, was a, he lived on the, an estate, a council estate in Burnley. He was a Burnley fan. They didn't have TV in the house. He used to walk to the local TV store and watch the FA Cup final through the window. So that's sort of really old school. But he took the club on, one, because it was going bankrupt, but two, he understood in, you know, intrinsically the link between that club and the community. Accrington's very typical, small town, 35,000 people, completely economically devastated, you know, the, uh, the high streets, basically, it's, it's charity shops and very little else. Mm. So of those 35,000 people, he estimates that probably, 50, uh, you know, between sort of 10 and 15,000 people are actually touched by the football club on a weekly basis. Mm. They do dads and lads sessions, uh, adult literacy sessions, uh, do programs for autistic kids, uh, long-term unemployed. So it doesn't matter actually that two or maybe mm-hmm. two, three and a half, or two and three thousand get, go through the gate. It's what the club can do and, and mean to its community. And you know that chapter's framed by the night they went up, which is an extraordinary achievement, lowest budget in the in the football league. They go up as champions, and it was a karmic night because Billy Key, who had very severe mental health issues, scored the goals. You know he talked about depression being the rat inside my head that won't go away. And at the end of it. Andy Holt was having a pint with his mate at the back of the stand about five minutes after they'd gone up. And, of course, there's carnage all around him. You know, people are jumping up and down. And this guy comes through the crowd and he, he goes up to him and says, Andy, Andy, thank you. And he didn't get anything else out because he just started streaming tears. Mm. And he just, he just melted back into the crowd as if he was embarrassed by his own sort of mm. emotion. Now, it was that moment I thought, 
I've got it. You know, yeah. that's what a football club is. Yeah. And I, I, I think, hopefully, and I'm, I apologise for this being a really, really long-winded answer, but hopefully, people will recognise that there is more to football life than a Stormzy video that's leaked to the press so that you can get your new midfield player in. Yeah. You know, and get 30 million hits on, you know, wherever you get the hits these days. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, I think that's uh, really I mean, important. On, on the one hand, you have this kind of rampant commercialism and this controlling of the narrative. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have someone like yourself who's trying to tell these human stories and... It's interesting we were chatting before and you were talking about you know how the challenges in, in trying to do that but you made an interesting point about being an author yeah you know rather than than maybe a, a daily hack as we we would yeah. call them you know yeah. um is viewed differently and that, that to me was usually encouraging as a sports publisher myself <laughs> that, that, that there, there's still that cachet of no i want to tell a story properly i want to convey that to an audience in, in a mature and fleshed out way it's kind of a few moments in the book like when you 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 speak to winkleman at mk dons uh, and you see, you say to him, you actually use Hopcraft as a calling card, and you say, "This is what I'm trying to do." Mm. And then, to be fair to him, he he goes and reads Hopcraft, yeah. and then he comes back. But th- that must be really valuable. I guess that kind of sales pitch is key to what you're trying to do. It is. It? I'm, I'm I'm very fortunate that the previous books have been well yeah. read within football, and I've always found football people when they're away from the machine to be really fair, and they understand the world in which they work is not Walt Disney. You know, there's some pretty bad things done to some pretty good people. But if you actually contextualise that, and the great privilege that one has as a writer is that you've got 100,000 words to balance and present a balanced picture, it has to be warts and all, because life isn't perfect. Life isn't unblemished. And I think people understand that. Um, the problem is people around them who build those walls that I talked yeah. about around Delhi, they're the ones who are the jailers. They're the, they're the jailers, and, and they're the ones that, that you have to get past. Yeah. There is a power of the sort of promise of all, almost the promise of immortality that a book creates. In other words, look, it's there, it's in hardback, it's going to be on your shelf, it's going to be there until yeah. you know gets burnt down or whatever. Funny enough, I did a gig last night in the, in the Signet Library in Edinburgh, and I'm, we were waiting in this, the green room was this fantastic old library. And I'm looking at um, books from like sort of 1500, 1600. And I'm thinking, that's what it's about. Yeah. So, and, and it, that, can, that power can have a practical benefit. Mm-hmm. So again, for an example from the book, I did, uh, I went into Barcelona. And um, Pep Segura, who, you know, is this sort of very bland type of general manager... But actually, he's, he's basically the most powerful man at that football club, apart from the president. Mm-hmm. Doesn't do interviews very much because anything that he says is dissected and mm-hmm. you know sliced and diced according to political advantage. Mm-hmm. And I was going for him through a mutual friend for about nine months, and uh, he eventually said, "Oh, so this guy isn't a sports writer then? He's not a journalist. He's an author. Okay, I'll speak to him." Mm-hmm. And that was that was wonderful.
Thanks to Mike for agreeing to this interview. Keep up with Mike on Twitter at Calvin Book and State of Play is now available everywhere in hardback and ebook. Finally, I chatted to Mike shortly after an event in September 2018 organised by Nutmeg, the Scottish football periodical. If you're into intelligent sports writing, check out Nutmeg at nutmegmagazine.co.uk. Finally, please do us a big favour, subscribe to this podcast now and leave a quick review on iTunes. Also, explore our back catalogue, including interviews with Henry Winter, Rory Smith, David Winner, Simon Cooper and many more.